Chapter 20 of The Motor Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vivian Weaver. The Motor Pirate by George Sidney Paternoster. Relates how the pirate holds up an august personage. I reached my destination about five and found, as I hoped, a telegram awaiting my arrival. It read, Ever so much better. Do not worry about me. Cannot spare you for long, though. Lots of love. E. With my mind very much relieved, I was able to devote my attention to my aunt, who was full of questions as to the reason for my unexpected arrival and equally eager for a full account of my doings during the past six months, during which time she assured me I had grossly neglected my duties, especially by my failure to keep her adequately posted regarding my engagement. I was anxious, after reading Evie's wire, to start forthwith for St. Albans. My aunt was equally anxious that I should remain the night at Sutgrove, and while we were arguing the point, a second telegram arrived which settled the matter. I tore open the envelope and read, Meet the 849 at Cromer with motor. Do not fail. Most important. Forrest. The message had been handed in at Liverpool Street at 4.50, and I wondered what could have happened to necessitate Forrest's presence in Norfolk. There was little use speculating, however, and I settled down to satiate, if it were possible, my aunt's curiosity. She was duly impressed by such of my adventures as I thought fit to relate, but she was not neglectful of what she considered her duties as hostess, and, in spite of the fact that I had eaten a hearty lunch about two, I was able, shortly after seven, to do adequate justice to the early dinner which she provided for me. I left home soon after eight, and in consequence of my impatience, had to wait ten minutes on the Cromer platform for the arrival of the train. As the engine drew into the station, I saw Forrest's head thrust out of the window of one of the carriages, and before the train had come to a standstill, he had leaped from the door and was at my side. He was, for him, unusually excited, and without reply to my greeting, save with a silent hand grip, he said, See anything of Mannering? Why, yes, I replied directly. I lunched with him today. He's stopping at the Royal. That's a bit of luck, replied the detective. Come along. And he pushed on in advance of me through the barrier. What has happened, I asked, as I caught him up in the station yard. I hold a warrant for his arrest and I am desirous of executing it at the earliest possible moment. That's all, he replied. I could hardly believe my ears. What in the world for, I asked. What should it be for, said Forrest, with a touch of sarcasm in the tone of his voice. He cannot be the motor pirate. It is impossible. He could not have deceived me so completely, I exclaimed. I would stake everything I hope for in the future, as well as everything I possess at the present moment. That he is, though, returned the detective with conviction. But we must not waste time. Take me to the hotel. Without stopping to argue the point, I jumped on my car. Forrest took the seat beside me, and we proceeded to the Royal. Leave the car and come with me. I may want your assistance, he said. 
as we pulled up at the entrance to the hotel. He sprang out the moment I stopped and ran briskly up the steps. A porter was in the hall, and to him Forrest turned. I want to see a Mr. Mannering who is stopping here at once, and I do not wish to be announced, he said. The man walked across to the office and made an inquiry of the clerk, then returning announced that Mannering had left an hour previously. Left, said Forrest, and his jaw fell. He stepped across to the office himself, only to learn that, though Mannering had booked a room for the night, he had after dinner called for his bill, paid it, and left on his motor, without giving any reason for his alteration of plans. Forrest stalked out of the hotel, his brow heavy with thought. I followed him. He stepped onto the car, and taking my seat, I asked him tersely, "'Where to?' "'St. Albans,' he replied, with brevity equal to my own and without further question, we were off. Don't mind taking a few risks, he said presently. The sooner we can get there, the better I shall be pleased. Then, leaning back in his seat, he asked me to tell him how I happened to learn of Mannering's presence in Cromer, and what he had said to convince me that he was in no way connected with the pirate. So while we were still running at a moderate pace, I gave him a brief history of my adventures of the previous night. Before I had concluded, however, the road ahead seemed clear, and pulling my mask over my face, I jammed down my highest speed and conversation became impossible. Forrest pulled his cap down over his eyes and turning his coat collar about his ears, settled himself apparently to slumber. Within half an hour, the lights of Norwich sparkled in front of us, and it became necessary to slacken speed. Forrest immediately resumed the conversation at the point where we had broken off and questioned me closely with regard to what Mannering had said to me. Once and again I endeavored to ascertain what had induced him to take out the warrant, but he would not satisfy my curiosity, declaring that it was of more importance that he should know all that I could tell him first. There seemed little likelihood of my learning anything, for we soon left Norwich behind us, and were running at full speed on the road to Thetford and Newmarket. Slackening speed only slightly as we swept through the villages and trusting to the continuous toot-toot of the horn to clear our path. Our progress was uninterrupted until we had reached and left the little town of Attleboro five or six miles behind us. One forest was afforded an opportunity, much to his chagrin, of giving me the reasons for his haste. Incidentally, I may remark that the occurrence which afforded this opportunity came very near depriving me of the chance of hearing anything from anybody, or him from ever opening his lips again. For while we swept along at our top speed, there was a sudden hissing sound, a sudden succession of jars, and the car swerved violently, nearly overturning. I jammed on both my brakes, and by good fortune the car did not overturn. I guessed what had happened, and there was no need for me to get a light to make sure. My sense of touch informed me that the off-back tire was as flat as a pancake. I hoped that the injury was only slight, but my hopes faded the moment I examined the injury. The tire had picked up a curved and pointed piece of iron and had been irreparably damaged. No patching was of any use. There was nothing for it but to replace the tire with a new one. 
Fortunately, I was prepared with a spare outer cover as well as inner tubes, and with a muttered curse, I threw off my coat and set about the job. Then, when that was done, and it took me a good hour to complete the task, I discovered, on restarting the car, that a further misfortune had befallen us. Either owing to the jumping of the car when the tire went, or more likely because of the sudden application, the foot brake had seized, and the transmission was so far injured that I could not get the car along above seven or eight miles an hour. I did my best to put the damage right. I lay on my back in the middle of the road and used all the language approved by the most fluent members of the automobile club for use on such occasions, but entirely without result. Exactly where we were, I did not know. And after I had relieved my feelings, I thought it best to jog along until we came to some town where it would be possible to get skilled assistance. And it was while we were progressing in this humdrum fashion that Forrest confided to me the reasons for his anxiety. In the first place, he said, your theory as to the stud found by Mannering's servants proved to be correct. It was winter's. I arrived at St. Albans the first thing this morning, and after getting your note, went straight away and interviewed the girls. They handed me the trinket. I took it to Winter, and he identified it. He will swear to it anywhere. By the time I had done this, your wire for me had arrived, and your man, having seen me go into Winter's house, brought it on. I took the next train to town and went straight to the yard thankful that at last I was able to report something definite. Besides, I wanted to take a warrant without anyone being aware of it, and I knew I could manage that better in London than in the country. Well, I called at the yard, ran across to Bow Street, and got my warrant, and returned to the yard in order to instruct a couple of our men who had been placed at my disposal. While I was there, particulars came to hand of a feat which throws all the other doings of the pirate into the shade. You mentioned, I think, that Mannering, when he told Miss Maitland that he was going away, said that all England would be talking of him. She said so, I replied doubtfully, but she was so excited. She was probably correct in her recollection of what passed, he said. If further proof were wanted to connect your friend with the motor pirate, those words would be sufficient. If what I know leaks out, the pirate will fill the popular mind more tomorrow than he has done in the past even. Yesterday morning, within six miles of Sandringham, he held up. He hesitated. I must mention no names, he held up. Let me say, an august personage. The king, I cried. An august personage, remarked Forrest, severely in broad daylight. Let me hear all about it, I asked eagerly. I don't know that I can tell you everything, for so far I only know the particulars wired to the yard. But the story is complete enough to enable me to do what I have hitherto failed in, and that is complete the necessary identification of our friend Mannering. And curiously enough, it is owing to the keen powers of observation possessed by the the august personage i reminded him a trifle maliciously as he hesitated forrest laughed quite right you score that time he remarked before resuming his tale 
Owing to the august personage's keen powers of observation, I am able to lay my finger on the one point which has puzzled me, namely the manner by which Mannering has managed to escape suspicion. It is a simple trick, so simple, in fact, that I cannot conceive how I managed to overlook such a possibility for so long. However, you shall hear the facts as they were told to me, and judge for yourself with what transparent means we have been hoodwinked by the rascal. The august personage, who, as you are probably aware, has been staying at Sandringham for some days past, has been in the habit of taking a ride on one of his cars whenever the roads were in good condition, accompanied only by his chauffeur. This morning he started for the customary run shortly after eleven with the intention of taking a circular trip through Hunstanton, Burnham, Docking, and Bircham, and returning for luncheon. The intention was not fulfilled since, before reaching Hunstanton, the pirate made his appearance, and approaching, as usual from behind, overtook the August motor. The August driver did not at first take any notice of the approaching car, but merely imagining that the driver had recognized him, and felt some delicacy at passing, he signaled with his hand for the stranger to go ahead. What was his surprise to hear the stranger in a loud voice bid him stop his car? He turned to look at the audacious person who had dared take such unwarrantable liberty, and at once observed with whom he had to deal. The pirate had in his hand a revolver, which was leveled at the august head. The august face, flushed with anger, and turning away, he contemptuously took no notice of the summons. The pirate thereupon fired two shots, aimed fortunately neither at the august personage nor at the chauffeur, but at the tires of the back wheels. The aim was good, the tires ran down at once, and the august personage found progress on the rims to be so uncomfortable that he thought it desirable to stop. The stranger ranged alongside and the chauffeur, rising from his seat, was about to throw himself at the throat of the assailant when his august master laid a hand upon his arm. No, no, he said, I can easily get another car, but I do not know that I could replace my chauffeur. Thereupon the pirate observed, I think, sir, there is so much wisdom in your remark that, in spite of my necessities, I almost feel inclined to forgo my usual toll in your case. The august personage, whose coolness had never for a moment deserted him, replied imperturbably, Having robbed me of a morning's enjoyment, it seems to me there is nothing of any particular value left for you to take. Then, sir, replied the rascal, you will be doubtless glad to purchase my immediately disappearance with the contents of the august pockets. August was not the word he used but it was one which showed that he was acquainted with the personality of his victim. The august personage shrugged his shoulders, and searching his pockets, could produce nothing but a cigarette case and a button. To show his sang-fried, I need only remark that when he produced the latter article, he laughed heartily and said to the chauffeur, I hope, P., you have something to add to the contents of my pockets or I fear this too eager gentleman would destroy our front tires as well as the back. The chauffeur had some loose gold, a silver matchbox, and a watch, and when these were produced, speaking with the same nonchalance he had retained throughout, the august personage remarked, I fear you have drawn a blank this time, Mr. Pirate. 
for upon my word that is the best i can do for you the pirate took the articles then he raised his hat i take he said the august word as readily as i take these souvenirs of this memorable meeting and with these words he pulled a lever and was speedily out of sight by jove i muttered the fellow's audacity is almost past belief but you said something of observations made by the august victim yes said forrest the chauffeur was much too agitated to notice anything but his master was not he observed four things first that the pirate was a man of about six feet in height mannering is five foot eleven and a quarter in his socks i remarked secondly that his hair was black thirdly that the nails of the right hand with which he took his plunder were bitten to the quick the identification becomes nearly perfect i interrupted fourthly that the car was originally a two-seated car with a tonneau body but that the seat had been set back and the bonnet was enclosed by metal plates shaped into the form of the bow of a canoe and bolted together in a manner which gave the impression that they might easily be removed why continued the detective i did not think of so obvious a solution of the pirate's mysterious disappearances before i cannot imagine it is the trick the black flag merchants have practised since the days of captain kidd i was silent i could only wonder at my own blindness then an excuse occurred to me after all i remarked we only met him in the dark End of chapter twenty